Welcome to the Natural Lifestyles Podcast with your hosts, James Marshall and Liam McRae, where we will be diving deep into the issues of modern masculinity, seduction, dating, lifestyle design, sexuality, psychedelics, you name it. This is the Natural Lifestyles Podcast. What's up, gentlemen? It's James Marshall here for the TNL Podcast reporting lockdown day number 643. Today, I have an extra special guest. They're always special and they just keep getting more special, but no one's more special than anyone else. They're just awesome. All the way from Taiwan, we have Dr. David Tien. How you doing, man? Yo, what's up? Good to be with you, man. Yes. So we've hung out a couple of times over the, over the many years. I think we met, was it in Australia at the 21 convention? That's right. Yeah. 2011? 2012? 2011. No, 2012. Like right. And you were like, when back in the day, I don't know if you do that, the conference circuit anymore, but uh, you know, back in the night, we were like, we've, we've done our not, time. No, yeah, <laughs> definitely not now. <laughs> right. So yeah, back in the day when we were, you know, hustling around the world, uh, I would go and speak at many different dating conferences and men's conferences. And there was always a colorful cast of characters, <laughs> but you were one of the few people that stood out to me as uh, someone with exceptional presence, charisma, and uh, knowledge. And I would say you are the most academically qualified dating and men's coach <laughs> on the planet. I'm going to say that. Um, can you can you tell my audience a bit about who you are and you know some of your background and credentials because you got some. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for the introduction, James, and and likewise to you. Uh, it's, it's an honor to connect. Uh, especially at this time. And uh, great to see your face and to hear how awesome your life's going. Uh, yeah, so almost 10 years ago uh, on the conference circuit, I guess you could say. And um, I started off my career, my first career was as a professor and, and, and an academic. So uh, I did three master's degrees and a PhD in my 20s and then became a professor tenure track. Can you just pause the, for a second? You just said I did three master's degrees and a PhD in my 20s. Just for anyone out there sorry. who's... <laughs> wants to feel bad about themselves. That's a lot of, that's a lot of degrees in, in, in your twenties. Most people in their twenties, like I spent my twenties kind of like figuring things out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was figuring things out and, and racking up some degrees along the way, but there's ways of hacking that by the way, in case anyone is interested. But, uh, then I, I became a professor at the National University of Singapore. Um, it was the best position in the world at the time. I was also looking at uh, offers in the U.S. And, uh, but I went with Singapore, and it worked out really well for reasons I could not have anticipated. Because uh, I also had on the side, as I was writing my dissertation, uh, starting a dating coach company. And back then it was just, it was pickup. I mean, back then the word dating coach was a euphemism for pickup. Yeah, it was like and, how to get uh, chicks in the club tonight. That's what we're doing, oh yeah, guys. Yeah, infield, in, in the clubs, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was go- that was going so well, and I was having, having so much fun doing it that eventually I resigned after a few years uh, as a professor and went full-time into that. And then I pursued that and persisted with that for uh, several years. And towards the end of that period of several years, it got um, more and more meaningless and empty. And I just didn't want to be in clubs and, and do that kind of thing anymore. I looked at ways of tweaking the model so it would be more meaningful, having them work with me for a whole year. And I could take them through mature, a more mature uh, journey. But in the end, uh, I needed to sort out my own issues. So I was able to, to arrange things so that I could travel around um, the world in a way. I left Singapore. I was mostly in Asia, but I did every year go around the world uh, through North America and Europe. And I ended up um, getting a lot of psychotherapy and benefited so much as a recipient of it that I wanted to get training in psychotherapy. So I've, in the past 
uh, over like five or six years now, been getting training in psychotherapy. So a lot of my work, especially in private coaching, is with the therapeutic model. And um, I've had training in IFS therapy, Gestalt, uh, Schema, CBT, DBT, DBT Advanced, um, and working on IFS Advanced, uh, as well as life coaching methodologies and modalities. Uh, the Tony Robbins, um, Chloe Medanis was my first certification. And that's just taken uh, my work in a completely different direction in the past several years. But it all comes together in many ways because it's all part of my own personal journey. And um, it's been really fascinating uh, just discovering that you also have gone on a similar trajectory. And uh, it's been a really meaningful part of my work now. So I'm a therapist and life coach specializing in men who need help initially with women and discovering that their issues are actually deeper and then being able to uh, go deeper with them into uh, resolving their inner conflicts and uh, healing and unburdening. And uh, that's where I'm at right now. So, so there we go. We're all caught up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this is, seems like a very um, amazing set of coincidences to that we're looking at similar stuff at the same time. It's funny, I think, that both of us, and, and I've talked to other dating coaches, you know, that I'm good friends with, and there is definitely something about us going through our own 20s and 30s. How old are you now? Turning 44 this year. You fucking bastard. You look like you're 28. Um, <laughs> it's the lighting. It's like, you look the same as when I first met you. And I'm like, I'm looking, I'm like, I don't. <laughs> you look great, man. You look like a sexy Jesus. Yeah, I'm wearing my um, silver fox thing now. And it's, it's working for me. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that we kind of used our own, used this pursuit of, of our own exploration. And then we coupled that with our, own, with our business exploration at the same time and, and our travel exploration. And in, that's a, a big part of what I'm looking at at the moment is, is lifestyle design, which in the way I would define that essentially is con consciously and strategically putting together a life that works not just in terms of exterior success, because I feel like there's a lot of information and a lot of good information, but also a lot of hypey information about how to optimize and how to hustle and how to outsource and, you know, four hour work week kind of stuff. And a lot of guys that we work with, or I would assume anyway, are interested in, you know, kind of outside the box lifestyles, not just, not just the pursuit of, you know, going to the club on Friday night to meet girls. And so it's been really interesting that we've, un in, this, in this pursuit of business and travel and so on, we've also uncovered our own stuff, right? Our own <laughs> um, issues, because I don't know about you, but certainly for me, when I first started doing pickup and then the early couple of years of me doing teaching, I had a lot to prove. A lot of it was about some kind of ego gratification about showing myself and others that I could get those types of girls that, you know, I wasn't the dork that I used to be that, you know, I could social climb, I could have get respect and influence and so on. Like it, there was definitely that sense of the young man trying to, you know, make his mark, but that certainly shifted for me over years. And, and I think as we both matured, we've seen that the issues that men face when it comes to, okay, the, their, skills with women that there usually is something much deeper and that's something i've been bringing up recently in terms of looking at male shame and trauma i was wondering if you can talk to me a bit about that from from you know your therapeutic um, perspective of of perhaps your own experience but also your clinical experience to talk about what are you, what do you think are some of the core like shames or core like internal issues that men often carry around because that so many so much of the time we're not allowed to even express that or it's not encouraged so yeah, what have you found like patterns in terms of, as you've dug with men over the years, things that keep reoccurring uh, in terms of their internal issues? 
Yeah. Oh, man, you just said so many really big trigger points for me to just have all these uh, reflections. And one was just how we adopted the sort of uh, nomadic lifestyle, and that led to awakenings. And um, that's a whole, I want to come back to that because that's a pretty deep one. And then in terms of men and the type of shame that they're uh, more commonly struggling with, there are a few layers that I've uh, seen. And the first, uh, the first layer is just feeling in general. So one of the biggest obstacles is being in talking about uh, psychology is that you don't want it to just be intellectual or cognitive. In order for any real work to occur, it's got to be in the emotions. They have to feel it. And in fact, the intellectual is actually not necessary. They can just go straight to the, to the feeling, and then you can heal and grow and unburden there. And many of us have strong intellectual parts. I know your audience, you were saying a lot of white-collar workers and, and maybe um, intellect workers. So they work in oh, front yes. of a computer Very or they're in their heads. They get paid for it. Yeah. And that was one of my biggest problems. And the, the first and biggest obstacle was actually breaking through the repressive shame of feeling vulnerability. So it's, it's one thing to just pay lip service to, yeah, I get, I, I understand theoretically. I wouldn't even think, it, I wouldn't even use the word theoretical for this, but I would, say, I would have said back then, I get it. I get mm-hmm. why vulnerability is good. I read some Brené Brown, totally on board. But then I when agree it came with down vulnerability. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I can do vul- I can do vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and crush then when it came, vulnerability came down, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and then, when it, but when it comes down to it, I get. I used to get really close to feeling the emotion of. Often it was sadness. Sometimes it was preceded with anger, but the one we were trying to really get to was sadness. And then it was just be like something would happen. For me, I know I learned that my defense mechanisms kicked in really easily and unconsciously where I do something with my eyes. So it would just be like some blinking, some rapid blinking, and then the emotion's gone. Or I look to a certain, uh, in a certain direction, or I take a deep breath. And all of these things took me out of feeling the emotion. So I had to learn first to identify what my own ways of repression were, and then to stop doing those things. Or as soon as I identify them to just make it uh, stop and then come back to what I was thinking and focusing on and then just staying with it. So kind of freezing my body language in a way so I'm not avoiding dealing with that memory or uh, the feeling that's bubbling up or that often when you're about to cry, there's tension coming up around your nose, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, you can relieve that tension just by physiology. And instead of relieving it, I stayed with it. And it was so challenging because it was happening unconsciously for me that my therapist at the time was getting quite frustrated. He's like, look, David, we've been on here for 40 minutes and we've been having a nice discussion, but we haven't done any work here. <laughs> like, what do you mean? And then I started to sink in like, oh, the fucker wants me to cry. You know, and then I'm like, oh, I can fucking cry. I'm a strong man, I can cry. But I couldn't, like, not really. Mm. And then uh, I actually engaged a method acting coach because I thought my breakthroughs are on the other side of repression. And in order to pull off this character well, a sad character or whatever the emotion is, I'm going to have to actually feel that for at least that time when I'm delivering that line. And holy, it was hard. But then I learned through the method acting coach that I have not just with sadness, but with any emotion that I'm not, that's not part of the toxic masculinity category of emotions. Like I can act like angry, like Hulk angry. That's acceptable in toxic masculinity. I can act like powerful, dominant, charismatic. I can do all that because these are all socially acceptable for a man. 
But when I'm acting, let's say, resentful or envious or you know, something like that, like uh, some kind of perceived weakness that a, man, a real man wouldn't have, like somebody offended you and gets under your skin. And yeah, how do you whinging show or that? Like, yeah. and, and then, of course, real sadness, the kind where you're just racking. And, and uh, so then I, when I was able to get those breakthroughs in acting, I came back to therapy and in the therapy sessions, it was like, okay, I, I can, I can act, I can cry. And, uh, but I didn't feel like it was sincere, but I discovered that if I actually did that, of just leaning into that emotion that I didn't want to feel unconsciously, that I unconsciously didn't want to feel that it would then catch up and I would then be able to, uh, start to do the grief work that was necessary. That was really the first step to the healing. <laughs> Um, this getting to that first step for me was, uh, over a year and a half or about a year, about a year and a half of work. Yeah. Um, but then once that clicked, it was much faster. Everything just started like a volcano just started going, um, out. And then, uh, I, f I found that that is the biggest impediment for achievers, especially male achievers. Very commonly they see, uh, sadness as a weakness despite paying lip service to vulnerability. What do you think sadness is if, if not a weakness? Like, because I, I've, I've been, you know, reading quite a lot about pre and pre-agricultural um, tribes. And, and like, I always think that it's a bit reductive to just say that people back in the stone age had it all sorted out and then agriculture came and screwed humans up. I think there's, <laughs> you know, it's more complex than that, mm -hmm. but certainly throughout the ages, there have been rituals or processes for both initiation and also things like grief, you know, whether when a, a tribe would come and grieve ceremony, like, you know, like a, a ceremony almost, uh, or passages of transitioning from war coming back into peace times, or, you know, that, that like in various times and places, humans had as a small, as a group processes for moving through some of the traumas of being alive because traumas were inevitable and probably much more so than they are today for most people anyway. So what do you think, like for anyone who's watching this, who might feel a bit triggered in the sense of like, well, there's two grown men who are supposed to be, you know, mentors of men. And they're talking about how they both go to therapy. And it's like, then it's, and it's like, if, if they have that sense of like, uh, that, coming close to those kinds of emotions, even hearing about them makes me feel uncomfortable. Maybe we can give them a bit of a different mental position on why that's even a benefit. Like some men would be just like, why should, why would I want to face grief or like learn to cry? Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm a tough guy. I'm a guy who gets shit done. I don't like to complain. You know, I'm not one of those pussies that's going to lie on someone's couch for three years and talk about my mother, <laughs> you know? So, so what do you, what do you <laughs> think is like in terms of a practical <laughs> or like more yeah. pragmatic sense of what well, grief is for? Mm-hmm. It's so part of it is the stigma of mental health and uh, the stigma against therapy. And a lot of achievers are in their grandiose phase or stage or uh, in their kind of like narcissistic personality or narcissistic part. And when that's happening, then they can't understand why they would need to grieve. <laughs> and the only thing I've discovered is that they kind of have to wait until they present so they, there's some, they come to me with some kind of thing that they want to fix or improve. And almost invariably, that has to do with shame. And the, well, the, the belief that you're not good enough and that you need to change yourself in order to be worthy, that you're not good enough the way that you are or were, and that, that in, good enough for love specifically, love and connection. And uh, when it comes to the grieving, 
and the sadness. That's necessary because what is being repressed is the grief over the incidents or those micro traumas, as I call them, uh, perceived traumas in your formative years that led you to that belief that you are not good enough, that you're not worthy. And in order to access those place, those memories, those times in your and those neural pathways, if we want to get more scientific, that are associated with that time in your formative years. So when a trigger happens and you get triggered and then you basically in a kind of PTSD uh, pattern, you go back into that anger or that sadness or that whatever the coping strategy was uh, back then to achieve or to please or to be a joker or to be a rebel. Those are all different responses to perceived micro trauma or perceived trauma. In order to undo all those coping strategies, we got to go back to the original, the, the source of that. And what you should have been able to do, but you weren't able to do because you were a child, is to grieve, is to see that, that what was done to you, either you misinterpreted it and your dad didn't mean it like that, or your mom didn't mean it like that, and you took it the wrong way, and, and you can grieve the, the lost years, and you can grieve how sad it was for this little boy to have believed that about himself. Or it really was an egregious wrong that was meted out on you, and that is sad, and you have to go and grieve that. But when you were a child, what happened was, instead of grieving it, you said, you stupid kid, you got to be stronger. I'm not going to let this happen anymore. And then you went into some other part. Another part of you arose to hide this wounded child. And you said, I'm going to now achieve in order to get mom or daddy's attention now because they're ignoring me when I'm this way. And I can't be that way anymore. So I'm going to exile that part of me. The problem is that part's always been there. Well, that, I think that's, that's really profound. Like, uh, and I think for most men, if they would think back over their histories now, just as you're saying that, I'm like thinking of just like, and it's particularly when you said like perceived wrongs, like I, I can think about things that happened to me where I was deeply offended and it really hurt me, but it was just that some, an adult was being a bit of an unconscious dick at that time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like even necessarily that the trauma was a objective truth. Although, you know, of course there are objective traumas, but, uh, that, that, that was something that then made me feel bad about myself and I didn't, didn't resolve it. And also that I definitely did, um, try to compensate by, yeah, like proving myself or yeah, being being a rebel or getting into drugs or, you know, all sorts of different things to, I mean, I don't want to be like draw two simplistic correlations, but yeah, you can see how those things over life definitely affect you. And I, and I certainly can see that with clients that they have swung hard in a, in a compensatory direction. And I, and I, one thing like this line kind of occurred to me when I was working with one client a year or so ago. I don't know. Sometimes I have many, most of the times when guys come to me there, they have a level of self-awareness that they know that there's something that needs to shift. And they're because of the fact that they've come this far uh, to actually ask for help, they're, they're usually ready. But sometimes you'll get a guy who is so, so, so unconscious of the thing that is, that, that is his schema. But when I sometimes look at him, I'm like the only thing that is holding this man up is the thing that is fucking him up. Right. Like, it's mm -hmm. like, you can see that sometimes that people just put on these defense mechanisms of humor or of, I don't know, ironic um, fatalism or all sorts mm -hmm. of other ways. And it, and it kind of calcifies into a character and often one that is not so appealing because, because it, is a sh it, is a, it is a mask of some sort and, and people perceive that as ingenuous. What do you think about these? Because 
we, we both work with high achievers, you know, we both work with men who are successful. And what are some of the ways that men put up these masks? And do you find that they're permeable? Do you need to convince people or does someone need to reach a crash point or some crisis point to actually, you know, seek help? Yeah, well, I try to convince them all the time through videos and uh, sometimes I'm successful. Uh, but uh, when you're it's sort of like an alcoholic on a bender and people are saying to you, dude, you're an alcoholic, man. And you're like, ah, I'm just having another drink, just having fun. You're exaggerating. And it's really when he's face down in the gutter in the morning, he'll be like, yeah, dude, I, f I need help. At that point, he's primed and ready. And, but then you have a small window because if he gets his act together, he's back in the bar. <laughs> and it's sort of like, so alcohol is an obvious external coping mechanism for an alcoholic, but achievers have their own and achievement is their alcohol. And I've worked with, as you have mentioned, we both work with a lot of achievers. And it's when you work with them for the long, long term, there are periods when they're down. And that's usually when they start working with you. And then things start to go well. And then for like three, four months, they're like, you know, I don't really need this work anymore. You know, let's just put this on hold and life's going great, you know, and they're not ready to go any further. And then it's really until they get, they hit rock bottom again because the cycle again occurs and they're back at it. And eventually enough of those cycles will occur that you can then say, look, we're just going in circles here and you're going in circles as you have been almost your whole life. And let's go deeper. So in terms of just the pedagogy of it, how do you get through to a person like that? Uh, it usually requires them to encounter the, the depths multiple times before they're really, you know, they're ready to see beyond their mask. Uh, but they've relied on, as you said, uh, these coping strategies of achievements, of um, making more money is a common one, <laughs> of seeing their self-worth based on their net worth or their, uh, how, what their reputation right, is like. Or how other people perceive them. Like when you ask them, because often they'll come to me uh, initially with girl problems or relationship issues. And the single guys, it's astounding. They're still, as immature as it sounds, their ideal woman is a, a often a woman who will make them look good. Like they want to have, they want to be the power couple. So then when they're out there at whatever conference or networking event, when the other guys or people see them together, it'll like double their social value or something like that. And they're still in their narcissism, even when they're thinking about trying to meet their needs for love and connection. And Can I ask you a question about that. Um, mm -hmm. cause I think that's really interesting. The idea of a trophy partner, which I know I've been guilty of and probably still am like if like, if, I mean, I'm, I don't have a, I don't have a permanent partner, but if I was to present to the world with one on the balcony, uh, I'm sure she would be, <laughs> She would look great because it's, it's interesting, this thing, and I've seen this in my life as well, that again, the things that fuck you up are the things that are holding you up. Like I needed all those narcissistic, uh, well, maybe I didn't need them, but I, I followed certain narcissistic things to prove myself, to like get X amount of girls, to get the hotter girls to, and, and I definitely cared about the fact that people knew that, like, you know, I was, I mean, as a professional, I was putting out posted photos of here's me with hot girls. And mm -hmm. like, I certainly oh, yeah. had I a lot to prove back in the, <laughs> back in my twenties, a lot more than I do now. Do you think there is a healthy way to live in that space? Like, can you, can you live in the world, but, but not be of it? Can, can you have the pursuit of a, you know, a beautiful partner without that being narcissistic? Or do you think that it's like a phase that men go through that, or maybe never come out of this need to prove externally is always a negative thing or 
because you know it's that's just, that's the thing that also makes you build the Sistine Chapel or you know conquer the world in some way. It's it's a it's a weird paradox. Well, right? Yeah, it's also the artist's dilemma. So, uh, speaking of Enlightenment figures, many in many cases the artists were not celebrated during their lifetime, and. Is it the art? So the, in, the analogy I'm drawing here is with the woman. Obviously, uh, you can have a beautiful wife and and love her and uh, delight in her beauty. But the question is whether you're doing that for external validation and you're getting off on the fact that others in the room or where you're, wherever you take her are looking at you like you're the man because you have her. And then it be, that's a narcissistic drive. And uh, there's, you take an example of, um, you know, those fairy tales about whether uh, you would want like a Shrek and Fiona kind of situation. Like, would you want her to be beautiful just uh, for you? Or, you know, is it the more important thing to have her beautiful when you're out in public? And uh, so so that's already been known for hundreds of years and that dilemma. And those who choose the outward mask because of their false selves um, are always going to be unsatisfied and unfulfilled dissatisfied in life. And they'll never find real fulfillment or peace or just joy. And eventually, I think it, they can keep doing that in their 20s and 30s. Because in my 20s, I didn't really care. I, like, to be, it's hard to coach guys who are just coming out of university because, yeah. in a way, they just haven't experienced yeah. life. It's like, at a certain point, you just can't, it's, it's counterproductive to spend a lot of time on the deep psychotherapy if it's an 11-year-old boy, you know, like... Sometimes he just needs to learn how to toughen up. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of value in what I call that knight or warrior energy of that hustle and grind and hard work and doing stuff that you don't enjoy because it's good for you and, uh, and just becoming a productive member of society because we actually, because of the capitalist system we live in, we're going to have to, uh, to pay for the food and shelter. Uh, you're going to, it'll help you if you're able to create value, even if you don't like it, if it doesn't fulfill you and all that. You have to be able to work hard. And... Uh, at that age, the younger ages, that's fine, I think. Um, they're not going to get that screwed up yet. <laughs> but when they get into their 40s or, late, or mid to late 30s, it really burns them out. And that hamster, is it a hamster yeah, yeah. wheel? The, the rat uh, wheel. <laughs> they will, uh, they're eventually going to find the emptiness in it. That's what happened to me. If you had told me while I was on my narcissistic bender in my early 30s, all of what I've been reading now and learning now about psychotherapy and clinical psychology, it was actually exposed to me. Like I had a few friends who were telling me, Dave, you know, you should look at this or have you considered this? I'm like, give me a break. That's all bullshit. You know, that's not real stuff. That's not real science. And I was just on a high. Everything was going pretty well. And I was getting off on validation, all kinds of other stuff. So I, I really had to hit rock bottom to see that. But um, a lot of it has to do with just it runs out. It runs its course in a way. It's also just some and, the, that blind energy of youth. Like, I mean, you know, like it just starts to slow down a bit in terms of that need to prove and conquer and fuck. Because there is such a big thing about that as yeah, a young and man. And one right? part of it is you, we have accomplished it. Like the easiest people to teach this to are those who already are at the top of the mountain and then they're still unfulfilled. And you can just point to it like, look, when you exited, you thought your life would be the best ever. And now you feel more empty than before. Isn't that telling you something? <laughs> and then they're ready. Uh, it was, and it was in a way the same for me. I, I thought that my happiness would come from getting the right and the right number of women around me and getting the right type of guy. And just even as something as simple as getting the VIP treatment the first time, you know, at the club and 
and all that and um, getting the celebrity treatment and that sort of thing. Oh, it's, it is a bit. It is pretty. Yeah, the first time. Yeah. When you've been a dork all your life and you're like suddenly like, I'm in, <laughs> totally, I'm in the club. It's, yeah, I'm doing that thing in the rap video. It's the same with like your first business class flight or your first first class flight or your first time getting upgraded to a suite at the Four Seasons or whatever. It's fun. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but it's not going to be like the fulfillment of your life. <laughs> and um, I've still, I've still never been up, upgraded to. I've never been upgraded first class yet. So David, so I'm still waiting. Upgrades to first, or uh, yeah, I've never had that either. I'll probably need. You can get it on miles. I probably need a probably need a haircut before they're going to give me that. Um, so let me ask you a question about worthiness, because as you brought up, and this is the thing that we. We uncovered over the years because, yeah, I originally started as a take guys out on Fridays and Saturday nights and we're going to get laid and have fun. You know, that was that was the business back in the day. And, um, yeah, very quickly started realizing that, that, okay, there's internal issues and then saw over the years that the same ones pop up over and over again, particularly what, as you very um, loosely described, this worthiness to receive, to be worthy of love. So what does make a man worthy if not his achievements, his utility, his hustle, his, his, you know, his muscles, his power, right? Cause this is the thing. It's like, what, what else do we have to feel worthy about? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. This is the big question. I've made other videos about this and I condensed it. I had like two hour explanations. I had an eight hour <laughs> video series on this. And then I, I condensed it to five minutes with music and animation in the background and all this stuff. And still, guys who watch it don't get it. So I'm going to try one more time here. And hopefully, I think your guys might, might because uh, you've been preparing them. They probably already know the answer to this, actually. And I would say, as far as being worthy of love and being worthy of connection, just love and connection. We're not talking about a gold medal or a billion dollars or a raise at your job. Okay, just worthy of love and connection. It is simply from being born. So take, for example... Well, so these are all, I'm going to give you two examples uh, that I wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to give you 10 years ago. But uh, one example is um, that I, the way I learned it was uh, thinking about my nephew who's autistic. He's severely autistic. And, and he's huge. He's a big guy, 6'5". I forget how much he weighs, but he's a big guy. And the medication they put him on in his early teens really made him gain some weight. So, uh, but he's lost a bunch of fat. He's, and in, when he was 14, we found out through his letterboarding that he's a freaking savant. He's a beautiful essayist, um, and he's just freaking smart. But we didn't know. He was like trapped in this body where he didn't have motor control. He couldn't even chew anything beyond, uh, you know, basic rice or something because he didn't have the motor control in the mouth. So he's trapped in this body, and even now as he's writing these essays about what his experience was like, the teacher thinking he's stupid and making him do the same repetitive task for hours on end. And in his brain, he's like, this is prison. This is torture. This is but he couldn't get it out of his mouth. And um, anyway, so before I realized he was a savant and thinking, oh my God, this is uh, going to be, basically he's going to be a dependent for the rest of his life. And our family's going to have to be able to uh, continue to, like I was thinking about getting a trust fund for him and making sure he'd be okay for the rest of his life. And just, and a lot of other family chipping in because his tuition for the special ed school was really high each year, like tens and tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, all the way from, you know, when he was identified in five, six years old. And thinking about like, man, I'm an achiever. All of us are, you know, my friends are all achievers. And we think of ourselves as valuable based on our achievements. And here's this boy that I absolutely love. 
and he can't do any of it. <laughs> and he probably won't ever back then, probably won't ever. Is he less worthy of love and connection? And there's a great book that I've assigned as, uh, to our book club in uh, the legendary coaching group that I run. And it was on uh, Flowers for Algernon. It's a brilliant book. And it was about uh, a boy who was developmentally delayed. Let's say he's an IQ of 70 or something, the lowest on the spectrum. He didn't even understand uh, when people were making fun of him and all of that. And the book was written from his perspective. Then he gets brain surgery, becomes like an IQ of 200, gets to the point where, and he gradually gets it, gets to the point where he can't communicate with other people now because he's too smart. And then there's a mistake in the programming, whatever, they couldn't sustain it, and he goes and he devalues or devolves back. And the, the tragic part was the going backwards, and he's like, I will never be, you know, and he's writing down his, oh, it's a brilliant well, book. that's a great um, concept. I'm going to highly recommend that. it. What flowers for? For Algernon. Algernon. And, and their first uh, subject was a mouse who was super smart and then became dumb again. And these issues of human worth, like there was all these sci-fi issues, usually if it's just like their exercises and workbooks for the book. But I took away the biggest question philosophically was human worth. And um, now, now we can abort. Uh, we've been, I don't know how long we've been able to do this, but we're legally allowed to abort babies that are identified as Down syndrome, you know, in Singapore anyway. And if you just look at videos or if you know somebody with Down syndrome and you would have thought, oh, the state thought you could just kill them off. You know, they weren't worth right. anything. And it's just like, what? Yeah. And hopefully now you're not such a narcissist, like whoever's watching this is not such a narcissist that you're like, yeah, spark the 300, kick them off the cliff, <laughs> those dumb retards be, or something. Most of us would be kicked off the cliff as well <laughs> for the Spartan 3, 300s. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think many of us. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. But like. I internalized somehow the opposite view that I wasn't good enough unless I, and there was a whole bunch of things I had to check off, including physical fitness, but also artistic. And I was like playing in clubs as a teenager uh, in jazz because I thought that that was what a well-rounded a renaissance, kid a renaissance was man, kind of. Yeah, all three A's: athletics, arts, and academics. And I was getting straight A's. And Is that an Asian thing? That like that like. It's an Asian American. An Asian American. We all started learning some classical music instrument when we were five, and to, anyway. So yeah, it's totally the opposite. Uh, the truth is the opposite. And um, another one, another just quick example. I just mentioned the example, not go into it. Uh, when I had to um, babysit a three-month-old who became my goddaughter, and at the time I was clubbing, so I was like, "This is a real imposition on my life." <laughs> <laughs> But I'll help you out, you know. And I remember holding this thing. It was it was smaller than from my my hand here to where my forearm ends. At that time, she was born premature, and I fell in love with her just immediately. I thought the first fear that came to my mind was if I slipped, and the and I just dropped her, she'd die. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit! I can't believe you guys trusted me with this." <laughs> and then uh, and then I just I became hyper alert because back then I was like, nothing can go wrong. I got like totally drunk. I get totally drunk some nights and just stumble home, not remembering how I got home and stuff like that. Because I just felt invincible when you're young. I wasn't even that young. I was in my early 30s. Um, but now I, I was like holding this kid. I was like, holy shit, life is precious. And I don't know anything about her. She, she wasn't able to talk. I mean, she's three months old. And she could pee and piss on, you know, um, piss and poo on me and throw up on me. And I'd still love her. Like, I don't love her less because she threw up on me and, or that she's crying because she's in pain or something. And it... It brings that back. Like if you've ever held an infant and you're like, 
you're not going to be worth love until you fucking get an A <laughs> on that test, bitch. So don't fucking cry at me, you know. Shut up. Yeah. And it's, it's weird because now we don't treat ourselves even as well as we would an infant or, you know, a kid who has Down syndrome. Like, we treat ourselves even harsher. We have this inner critic or critics in our minds, different parts of us that are really harsh on us. And we're not good enough. You're not, and these, got, these parts come out during approach anxiety. Right? When you're in the club and want to meet a girl, suddenly these voices come out of nowhere like, you're not good enough. You, look at all these people laughing at you. All these different voices. These are all parts of you that are just frightened. And I just on that, I would love so, it. Like what I would love one time is to be in a club and then to just get suddenly inside everyone's mind. Like, so you just have, you just have, you hear the, in the dialogue of everyone in the club and everyone's there like cool. And the chicks are like, Ooh, but everyone's the, like the girl's like, am I fat? That girl's hotter than me. The dude's like, do I look cool? Does people believe me? No, no one's buying this shit. I'm going to stand over here. You know, just like the, the, the wall, the fucking screaming uh, avalanche oh, yeah. of paranoia and anxieties and you know, that is actually going on yeah. in a club. Oh, that would be a fun, yeah, that'd be a fun movie. Yeah. And then there's just <laughs> one guy sitting there who's actually having a good time. He's like, great night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his mind's like empty yeah. and he's just, this is music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so different. So, yeah. So if you look at it, like... Shame is the biggest issue and the lack of self-worth and... It's a deep, it's a deep. So concept. you're talking about, okay, so we have a birthright because, because it's in some ways it's a natural state for humans to feel love for other people and to, to receive love, uh, or, you know, connection by being there. Um, but at the same time, we've, we've all had experiences, some more and worse or better than others of proof that that wasn't true proof in the sense of sub- subjective proof, right? So like that your parents didn't give you the kinds of love that you needed or that you were bullied uh, at school or that you had relationships with women early on, maybe that were really toxic and you chose the wrong partner and you were also not prepared for her. And then, so you got shredded. Um, You know, there is, or, or people just telling you you're, you're a piece of shit or you'll never make it or whatever else. So there is all this evidence coming from, can be coming externally that you are not worthy of love and connection. Um, and I've, I've seen over the years that men have a very skewed idea of what they think women need and want out of men, uh, in the sense that they, you know, they think that the woman, I'm, I'm not worthy to a woman of value unless I have these external markers and I, and I look the part and I, and I'm unshakable and all that kind of thing. But one thing I love is when I, when I teach a live workshop and it takes about a day or two, once I start to get to know the guys, cause I spend, you know, seven, 10 days with them. I used to. And um, after a few days, I can start to see in the guy, I'm like, that's what's fuckable about you. Like, I'm like, I, you can't see it right now, but I, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good observer of humans and I've watched so many, I'm like, that's charming. Uh, I see that idiosyncrasy in you that I can tell women would like. You know, there's like, I start to see that, ah, you are a sexy dude, even though they don't perceive it at all, because I have much more experience knowing what women actually want. So do you think that there's a big disconnect, especially when it comes to women? Because men base so much of their self-worth around women, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yes, absolutely. So it's a real caveat that it's what we're talking about, what you're worthy of. It's not of anything besides love and connection. So I I mentioned the Olympic gold medal and all that. I should probably throw in there, considering the audience, um, that it includes uh, a woman liking you. So whether a woman likes you is completely subjective to that woman. 
you know, some girls are into this, some girls are into that. You know, there could be all kinds. And there are some universal markers, just like there are for uh, the other direction. Some girls are just hot. To most yeah. men, <laughs> and uh, you know, and some girls are just ugly to most of um, attraction. We're talking about. I was originally I was referring to love and connection, but when it comes to attraction, that's a totally different thing. So the best combination of them is being able to optimize yourself on attraction, and then there's that's the old technology we used to teach a lot of, and that's still very valid. But if you only do that then eventually at some point when you want more than just the sex or the physicality and the fun, and now you want to go deeper into, and actually what's, what is undergirding that for most guys is actually the deeper thing, which is connection and real love that she'll stick with you. Even if you get hit by a car, end up in the hospital, maybe in a coma, you lose your job and all the other external shit that you're depending on to be the man. And I, I say that you're in uh, got hit by a car because let's say you're a quadriplegic now. So all those big muscles and all that other stuff don't apply now. And is she going to just run, cut and run? Yeah, you don't got the stuff that I valued you for. And I wasn't valuing you for who you are. It's what you have um, and what I could get from you. And it's not who you are as a human being. And now that you don't got those things anymore, you, you lost your money. You lo- and and I, I say the car accident because it's no fault of his. Let's say, and she just leaves you. Um, and that's, there are guys who've been in that situation. A woman just, like, he gets up, ends up in jail. Uh, that is his fault. But, uh, and then she just, like, ups and runs and fucks his friend. And it's now she's with the friend. And he comes out of jail and he's like, I thought you loved me. No, she never did from the very beginning, right? Like, she was using you just like she's using your friend in this scenario that I'm giving you as an example, a hypothetical. And, but guys work so hard to be worthy of a woman. And it is completely the wrong path to find fulfillment and happiness. If you are able to love yourself, that is, your true self is able to extend love to, its, to your various parts, including the part that's the inner critic, including all the inner child parts that you've got that you think are weak and vulnerable, but that you, you extend love to them. And you are then loving yourself in all of your various uh, personas and parts and things like that. Uh, then you are going to be in a great position to connect with a woman um, from a place of non-neediness because that unconditional love you're giving to yourself is flowing out of you versus going to a woman basically unconsciously saying, tell me I'm good enough. Show me I'm good enough. Give me evidence. I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just a losing game there. It's a really important point. This is about loving yourself. And I think very important to emphasize loving the bits of yourself that you don't like as well. I've, I've often had clients say to me things like, I need to crush the old me or I need to Ooh, like, yeah. you know, obliterate the beta version. I used to version. think that way myself. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, I need, like my, the, it's, and it's, isn't it such a, imagine a therapist telling you, okay, what you need to do is destroy all evidence and you're... Yeah, uh, basically you're not good enough, so let's yeah, get rid of that old you. Let's just destroy everything. Okay, the bits I don't like about you is everything. So <laughs> let's kill that and replace it. Like... And I've had guys very sincerely say that, and I, and I, I understand why, you know, because they're like the th- the behaviors and the emotional reactivity and the clothes and the what and the body or whatever of of the person I've been so far, I haven't gotten what I wanted, and so that therefore these things are not good enough, and I need to destroy them, and I need to hate them, and right? I need to actually hate elements of myself, and then of course you're at war with yourself, right? This is not a this is not a a positive or healthy way to view your own development. So maybe 
talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you extend love to parts of yourself that you don't like, you know, that you're, that you're scared of, or that you find, you know, that there's, there's, there's shame and guilt and fear related to it. Or, or there is, and there's things that are true, you know, you are lazy or you are an addict or you are, um, you do get angry too much or you do retreat from the world and hide, you know, these, which is, it's proven because you, you know, you were there. And so how do I extend mm. love to parts of myself, which I know should be changed or, or they're just old calcified parts that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't consciously creating, but got created through childhood. So. Yeah. Wow. You asked the best <laughs> questions, James. We're covering so much ground. Uh, because your questions are so awesome. So, yeah, this is a fantastic one. And I'll start by saying your true self already knows how to love all of your parts, including the ones that you currently are judging as undesirable. And the problem is that when you consider them to be undesirable, you're judging them from another part of you, <clears throat> not your true self. And what that means, uh, in case that's too much IFS therapy jargon there, is that the first thing to realize is that all of your parts have positive intention. Even the addict parts, even, I would even go out on a limb to say even the psychopathic parts. So maybe a, a part like the Joker, somebody who does some heinous crime or uh, even enjoys inflicting pain. At some level, I, doing that act was, was trying to deal with some kind of emotional shit that you didn't know how else to deal with it. Um, and the, definitely with the addict, uh, hopefully people understand how that starts and keeps going is, is as a coping mechanism, right? Like life sucks or there's like some crap that happened in life and having, you know, taking a drink, getting a drink takes the edge off and then the edge comes back and you keep having to get more drinks. But the intention was good. You want to not feel so bad anymore. And there's a part of you that jumps in and says, hey, try this. This will help you not feel bad. The intention was good. They didn't want this, you to feel bad. And you start with, okay, this part that is very neurotic now and is harmful and destructive in its behavior had originally a positive intention. It just isn't doing it the right way. Or maybe when it started, it was, it was good, but then it went way overboard. And that's like an achiever. Like Achievement is great to a, a certain extent, but if you just go overboard... Um, well, th with almost anything, it will be bad. And you start with a positive intent. And then any part that relates to that part that you're targeting in a negative way, like a judge saying, man, that fucking achiever is getting in the way of me enjoying my life. And that's another part. That's the part that is polarized with the achiever part. And then you can you should pay attention to that part, too. Like, oh, I wonder what part that is that doesn't like the achiever. Now you've got two parts of you. One is the this achiever, as in my example here, and another is maybe a fun-loving, more childlike part that just wants to be in the moment and go ride your bicycle or something. And these two parts are polarized. And you, it's easier to love the fun-loving bike rider, and it's harder to love the hard-going A-type personality, maybe. And what you're able to do is, once you're able to separate those, like those are not all me. There are different parts of me. And they both have positive intention. And they're both dealing with some, some perceived trauma in their own way or life in their own way. And then when you come to it that way, starting with positive intention, and then you attend to it, uh, which is to say, do you listen to it? You ask it questions, uh, so to speak, in your mind's eye. Like, um, what is your intention for me? What's your job for me? When did you start doing this? What do you fear might, and here's a really big one, what do you fear might happen if you were to stop doing this job? And you, you learn about that part of you. All of those questions will lead you into a state of, 
love towards this part, if these are true answers. And then what will happen inevitably, if you're, if you're new to this process of loving yourself, is that other parts will jump in and judge the part. And then when that happens, you say, oh, hey, other part, you know, in your mind's eye. <laughs> and you say, hey, you're really valuable too. And I know why you don't like this guy. But right now, can you just step back, take a deep breath, relax? Because I wanna, really want to focus on this target part. You're inside part. your mind in this, you know, this asylum as different parts come out. Like, but I oh, don't absolutely. Like, you too. Uh, I think you're awesome as well. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you're fucking sexy. You. Oh, dude, so that's how it works, just man. <laughs> it's uh, it's really weird when you. Do, it's hard to do by yourself. Uh, it's possible. Uh, my clients after 10, 20 sessions are able to do it on the, on their own with mild um, issues, but uh, especially with severe trauma or any kind of overwhelming emotion, if they get too blended with a part that's in a painful pattern, it's a lot better, it's a lot easier to get guidance with it. So the therapist is really like a guide, just prompting you with these questions and just nudging you in a certain, you know, just like, hey, try this, ask that part this. And then it's just this gorgeous, beautiful, psychedelic experience that unfolds. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I love doing this parts work is because as a therapist, it's not my responsibility to unburden somebody. I just guide them. Uh, it's just I open the door and then they do all the work. And, it's, and then that's how they arrive at fully loving themselves because they're the ones who have discovered this huge, this never-ending fountain of care and compassion and confidence and courage and connectedness that's already in them. So that's the longer this answer. This is a, something that makes a man at ease with himself when, like you become much more attractive when you reach that point when you move past your narcissism, I've got to prove everything and I can't show any weakness. And sometimes people do a very good job of that. Like I know at certain points, I looked the part and was it was all gleaming and I had the trophy wife, I literally had her and all that kind of stuff. So people believed it, like the, you know, the show looked, mm -hmm. show looked real. But after I, you know, went through a big breakdown, losing her, losing, basically almost losing my business, you know, leaving Australia and having to start again from scratch, which I'm now kind of doing again in, in, a, in a different phase. It was those years that I gradually came to the point. I did a lot of work. I went and did a lot of medicine work with ayahuasca and psychedelics. Oh, nice. and, yeah. Uh, you know, meditation retreats with Vipassana and movement technology and all sorts of different mm. things. And it's funny now, like now I feel like I have more flaws than I ever did in a way. <laughs> yeah. But I'm much more at ease with them, like much more comfortable with the fact that, okay, yes, like there was, especially when I was a hardcore Buddhist, I was, I was so hard on myself because it was like my only mission in life is to become enlightened. This is like at 24 years old, like a very extreme weird thing, but... You know, it's like, that's all that mattered. So everything else is, is a sankara or a, you know, a reactive pattern. Every, everything, every emotion that I have is not, is, is just a, uh, an expression of physical sensations that I'm not, that I'm getting entangled in. Right. So I was always mm, trying to dissolve everything, dis mm. dissolve all human attachments away. But I think over, over the years I've come to peace with it. I am a human. I'm not a, I'm not a Buddha saint. And, and I have all sorts of flaws and, and I'm, I'm working on them more than I ever have been, but I'm okay with that. And that is timelessly attractive, right? It's like, that's what, that's what it means to be cool. Like cool is yeah. someone who's at ease with himself, right? And that can be at ease in all, all sorts of quirky ways or in, oh, yeah. you know, like lots of, lots of different styles. Yeah. The moment you try to be cool, you're not cool anymore. 
Yeah. Unless, yes, unless you ironically try to be cool and they can tell that you're oh, yeah, ironically right. trying to be cool and then that can be kind of cool as well. Um, right. So just, uh, I don't want to, I know we could talk about this part for a long time, but, we, but I just want to give my guys a little taste because in my recent videos where I'm talking about healing, I mentioned, I mentioned some methodologies and I don't have nearly the experience that you have in terms of specific healing modalities, particularly in Western traditions, as far as I understand from with you. Four guys that are, are hearing this and going, yeah, okay, I would, I would do that. You know, I would, I would talk to someone, you know, they're open to the idea. It's still pretty daunting to like, well, where do I start? Like, what kind of school do I choose? Am I Freudian or am I doing CBT or am I going to just find a shaman in the jungle or... Um, what maybe you could talk about some firstly like what makes a good therapist because whenever someone asks me about what martial arts should i choose i say well it's more about choosing a good teacher oh good you can have yeah. a good you can have an excellent karate teacher and an excellent kung fu teacher and you can have an awful one of either and they'd be worth nothing so maybe some of the things you would look for in terms of finding a good therapist because it might take three four five tries right you don't you don't they're not all amazing yes. and they're not also not all appropriate for you because you have a different you know style yes. Yeah. So what would you look for in a good therapist? Yeah, absolutely. So I know some really great therapists, especially in Australia. That's where I did uh, my intensive IFS training. But they're almost all women. <laughs> it's like 85%, 80 to 85% women. And they're older. Uh, 50 is considered, would be considered young for that cohort. Super experienced, like really top-notch people in charge of uh, huge clinics or hospitals or you know, but they wouldn't be able to relate to what a lot of my guys are going through. So I, with a total humility, th realizing compared to their 20, 30 years, 40 years experience, I'm just totally a white belt here on this. Why wouldn't I just keep referring people to them? And I realized whenever I did that, the guys would come back like, oh, I didn't click with her or she looked at me weird or something <laughs> like that. And just the fact that a lot of the guys who are looking for help with women already are going to naturally experience transference problems with their therapists, like transference issues, which is totally natural. So the therapist has to be able to massage that. So as you're helping somebody heal and unburden, sometimes, and this was always happening with psychodynamics, you will end up seeing the therapist as sort of your savior. So he would be now your mom or your dad or the one that you wanted love from because now he's superintending this so whole you, process. They become part of your part of your pathology. Yeah, yeah. So it's best for, for if guys are having issues with women and they want to talk about these issues that they have with women to first seek out a male therapist just to avoid a lot of the sexual transference that might occur. Um, you're still probably going to make that male therapist take on the role of your dad in an unconscious way. So that therapist has to be aware of that. <clears throat> um, but it's just a less tricky without the sexual element. And then the other, th so that's, that's a really easy practical uh, tip okay, for guys and that'll immediately eliminate 80% of therapists so it makes it easier because right. there's so many of them now you're just looking at this one <laughs> <Down> right. <to> the... <laughs> and here's the other thing I love what you said about it's more important the practitioner than the actual approach that they're trained in and I found that to be true also in, in fitness and especially in martial arts um, but also in therapy if you're a good therapist and you've had um, 10 or more years of experience you would have been forced to learn lots of different modalities to keep your licensing. So in most countries, to keep your licensing, you have to show continuing education credits. And the easiest way to get CE credits is just to take another course. 
and then they send you a certificate. You send that certificate uh, over to the licensing board, and then they reapprove you for another year or another two years. And by the time uh, you're 10 years in, you've already, you're 10 years past your university education. And in university, you usually learn something like a CBT because it's the easiest to teach because it's just cognitive. And then you get into the deeper stuff where now you're doing what's called experiential therapy, where you're really trying to feel feelings, not just talk about them. And that's where the real power is. So if you find a therapist who has experience with experiential, especially with non-pathological approaches, so IFS and Gestalt are, are examples of non-pathological. Uh, they, where they basically what that means is they don't pathologize some of your parts. So in CBT, for instance, if you had uh, a part that's an addictive part and it's chosen alcohol as its route to cope with stuff, if you have a successful treatment, the alcoholic part disappears because he wasn't any good anyway. Want that to just stop, uh, and that's just pure repression. Uh, and just because it was smooth or uh, doesn't mean it's gone away. It's still there. And with IFS and Gestalt, even let's take an extreme example of a psychopathic or, um, or narcissistic part. That part, we start with uh, the assumption it has a positive intention. And therefore, it, it never it needs to go away. We, it just needs to stop doing this thing that's harming it. And it doesn't really even enjoy doing that. It turn, it'll turn out. And it stays with you because it's a beautiful part of you. And you just got to unburden it so it can play its proper role in your uh, psyche and your self-system and your psychology. And that's a much more healing process than pathologizing a part. So as far as like choosing an approach to take, I'd recommend IFS therapy, which stands for internal family systems therapy or gestalt. That would, or, uh, or and I would also, if you have extreme trauma, I'd also give EMDR, which is a eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, there's plenty of empirical evidence for that as well. And, um, there's so many methodologies, actually. You can just try them all. But the therapist that you should stay with is the one you really click with. And like you mentioned, it might take three or four tries. And many therapists, especially those who are just beginning their careers, will give free consultations for the first uh, try. But there's almost there should never be an obligation to go further past the first consultation. So don't feel bad if you email the therapist, hook up a first consultation, and then you decide not to go through with it. Uh, that's normal. So you oh, yeah, I said, audition. Yeah, definitely. I, I said in my recent video, you know, move through them like Tinder dates. It's like until you find if you've, if you, because nice. yeah. I've had a couple of tries at therapists where I walked in and, and I don't, it's not that they were a bad person, but something about them just like, nah, I'm irritated. They don't get me. Yeah. Well, one thing, I think one thing to look out for, and this goes for life coaches, because you've just described something that does not exist in our side of my side of the industry. It's like, you're like, to keep your license, you need to upskill every year. And I'm like, license? The, the what? <laughs> Accreditation of a who? International right. governing body of a what? So now? <laughs> it's like, right. you know, the life coaching industry is completely unregulated, full of all sorts of scammers, cowboys, madmen, people who've got, who, and like people who are projecting a lot of their own stuff onto things. And just and just people who just randomly set up because you can get paid more if you can if you can convince people to pay you five hundred or a thousand bucks an hour then you're a five hundred or a thousand dollar an hour life coach. Uh, I am, and I'm not accredited with shit except for being awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I've I've noticed with you know you and I have been around coaches of all sorts for for a long time, those you know ones with bits of paper and ones without bits of paper, that there is. There can be an, a tendency with people who have a strong character and are charismatic and have a 
let's say, a strong sense of their own will to tell you how things are. And I think with, with therapists, like that can be the same thing is that like mm. they ask questions, they draw something out of you and then they assess and tell you, this is that, this is what that is. Um, I've found that kind of approach to be, you know, that breaks rapport and, and it just puts yeah. a, puts a box on around somebody which totally. doesn't need to be there. So would you yeah. say that in terms of the way that the therapist deals with you and how they question you and how they oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, interact matters. Easiest, that's one of the easiest ways to tell whether you're going to click with this therapist. And in a way, it's good for them to do that so that you can eliminate them quicker. If they're more upfront with their values and their judgments. So if, for instance, you want to have multiple girlfriends and that's just the truth about where you're at in life, blurt it out at the first session and see if the person gets all moralistic on you and stuff. And like, okay, we're just coming from different places in the world or whatever. And, uh, you know, you're probably a good therapist for really conservative folks. I'm not that way. But I, IFS therapy generally is so non-pathologizing that the therapist isn't really even part of that equation. So if you're, if when you go inside, and that's really when it starts, you close your eyes, you ground, and then you try to find where that energy is, that part that's in, it's in some kind of pain or uh, disorder or something, and you attend to it. And we're simply looking for whether you like yourself. Doesn't matter whether I. In fact, as a therapist, if you if there's a part of you that doesn't like any part of the of the client, that's the therapist's problem. And then you've got to attend to your therapist parts. So it's a beautiful process when sometimes I have an explainer part or an intellectual part that starts the session and has to give the theoretical background for what we're going to do and what you know just the overall analysis. To give it's someone to, orient, to orientate someone, basically. Yeah. And then it's like, it's like, oh, it's a lot of work. It's like teaching in a university class or something, you know, for the first 10, 15 minutes. And then as soon as we're like, let's go inside and see what's going on. Let's not prejudge anything. Let's just see what happens. And then you, the client closes his eyes and you just start to take a deep breath. You ground. And then after a few minutes, you realize... You see it, I, like my therapist parts calm down and, and my truer self, my highest self comes out and it's a completely different perspective. I'm like, why was I worrying? Why was I thinking this part of this client shouldn't be there or we need to change it or we need to you know, fix it or something? It's not that at all. And let's just see, help this client love himself more. And that means that we're just looking for his self-energy to come out more, his courage, his confidence, his compassion, his care to come out more towards himself. And in, in a way, it's like therapist isn't even really in the room, so to speak, for that right. process to occur. They should be, yeah, they should be detached in, in those ways. I, I, I know with my, when I speak to my therapist, I try to be a, an excellent client in the sense that I keep him as a, like, even though I can tell him like, this guy's cool, I would actually like to hang out with him. Like, we could be buddies, but I deliberately keep that like, okay, his role here is not to reflect something personal about himself onto me. And so I, you know, I, I keep that respect line of like, okay, I see him as a, as a mirror to bounce things off or as a, you know, he's, he's the guide, he's just like the, you know, the guide that's you know, leading me through this, this kind of thing. There's a big aspect that you've, you've mentioned over a number of times here of feeling, right? So of, of and, you, and you mentioned earlier on that a lot of men don't even know how to feel. And I, I see that a lot with physicality, right? I, I work a lot with body movement, with rotations, with, you know, Chinese internal martial arts, things that I give to, to guys, because I see that so often my demographic is physically locked. They may be very strong and they maybe have, you know, good, strong bodies, but their lack of 
movement in joints, in musculature, in in like creative non-linear ways of moving, and then the way that they lock emotionally because it's you know it, it's a physical. I don't know if it's it's not all physical, but it's you know there's a physical representation of being locked and not. Uh, not being able to open your heart, for example, or not being able to feel your gut or not being able to express your sexual desire through your cock and balls. And you see that, right, with, with clients where you can almost see the patho- the the issue is is in the tissues. The issue has changed the way they move or or has meant that their, their face is kind of frozen or, you know, in all sorts of subtle and obvious ways. So I, I approach that by looking at meditation and and. Well, I would say like movement with awareness mixed in with it. So learning something like a swimming dragon or a Tai Chi or Edo Portal type of movement mixed with very precise Vipassana style awareness, I found, you know, gives guys an actual experience of what it can be like to feel, you know, because mm-hmm. have you, have you find that too, where a lot of guys yeah. like, that's the hardest thing is like, they don't know, they don't have the pathways yet to, to feel certain things. Oh yeah. And even as I've been scaling my reach, I've found guys who aren't achievers. And we're, we're talking about this just before we hit record. And some who have very different political views from mine and just different backgrounds. And discovering that even accessing the achiever warrior in them, that's not even there for them either. But then dealing with an achiever who knows how to get into work mode, where he can do an all-nighter you know, at the office and get the thing done and, and then collapse and heave later... <laughs> Uh, even just getting there, that's amazing. And that's something that we should start with gratitude for that part of you that's able to do that. But then what it will result in is a really stiff musculature or just a rigid rigidity of the body. And um, in therapy, for, for, for my practice anyway, and in IFS therapy, we're trained to always start with the body. So as the eyes are closing, we the first prompt is to discover or to locate where that part that you want to make contact with is located in, on, or around your body. To just get the client in the body, not into the worries and the thoughts and the ideas, but into the physicality of the body, just to be aware of where the tingling is, where the tension is, where there's like this throbbing somewhere, it doesn't feel comfortable, you know, all that. And sometimes it's just because they've fucking injured it <laughs> or they're just really sleepy or something. But often it's something uh, deeper, psychosomatic. And uh, there's a great book, um, Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk. He's a renowned psychotherapist and neuroscientist. His book was published in 2014. I read it like 2016, around there. Changed my life. And it's amazing that it's now New York Times bestseller number in the first position. 81 weeks, I think, as of this week, uh, consecutively on the, on the list. After, like, five years after it was published. So it's oh, one of those perennial like bestsellers. Hit, hit later, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, and it's now kind of outdated uh, science, but everything he says in there is true. It's just that we've gone, you got even more evidence for everything he's saying in there. Uh, maybe that's why it's resurging in popularity. And as you can tell by the title, the body keeps the score. So any perceived trauma is going to get stored as lactic acid or as some other kind of uh, biochemical process in the body. And it will calcify, is the word you've been using. It's a great word for that. And undoing those kinks and... Uh, getting to those parts of the body and even just mentally attending to them to get send the have the brain send signals down to go check on what's going on there. Just even that uh, attention to it helps it well helps do all kinds of things for your psychology. Yeah, you're and, remapping uh, yourself in a way, right? Like remapping yeah. the fit the intern you know the actual tissue and and because I, I, I that was what I saw in my first vipassana retreats when I first started going and doing 
you know, heavy meditation was that it was the action of not doing things and allowing the body to just take over that, that started making very subtle, but very profound changes. When I first started sitting, I found that I would get these tremors up my spine, like involuntarily that it was that once I let go of the tension in my shoulders and I made my spine upright and I focused on my breath, but then my body started doing stuff, twitching and unraveling and, and, you know, like numb areas would get really painful and that pain would change. And it's like, there's so much that your body is intelligently doing. If you just let it do it right? instead yeah. of compounding stress and compounding tension and, and your body in very linear movements and in shoes all the time yes, and, absolutely. you know, exercising only in linear ways and so on. Yeah. Uh, before I did the therapy training, I was doing that Ido Portal style movement training. I just got a one-on-one coach who was really expensive in Singapore, like the one guy who was doing it. Lauren Pert was a really fun guy. And it was amazing. I was doing like the lizard walk. I was doing a lot of, there was a lot of handstands at first. And, and then just all these muscles in the body I didn't know I could um, like get stronger there. And I was just doing the old-fashioned deadlifts, chest press, you know, the old bodybuilding thing. And it puts you in a plane of motion that is really just one dimensional. And it's great for building strength for that movement. I still do all that uh, deadlifts and squats and things. But um, to get that fluidity and flexibility of thought and feeling, it has to be echoed in the body. Otherwise, you're going to hit that limitation and you won't understand how to go there. Um, but just being able to identify even that part that's exiled uh, in your mind is like finding that muscle that is preventing you from doing that cool move in the mirror <laughs> and sort of being able to isolate and being self-aware enough in the body. There was a, a position, a choice uh, last year where I could have done more training in somatic therapy. I had the option of, and I knew people who were working in the field. So there's a great style called somatic experiencing therapy. And another one's trauma release exercises, TRE therapy that is done in the military, U.S. military. But because I worked through this online medium, uh, I didn't think it would be as, as, as worth it for my time personally. But I recommend to everyone that they should experience that full body kind of therapy or even at the mindfulness level. Um, so it's awesome that you're doing that. That's fantastic, very necessary work. And I benefited from it personally going through about a year and a half of one-on-one -on -one training in that Lauren Pert style of, of just pure movement. And finding the joy of movement. Like there's, eventually you get to that freestyling, like where there's some kind of rule, like you have to cross a body part every time you move or something like this. Yeah, like you can't lift any of your limbs off the ground or some like rule. Yeah, like you can lift yeah. one limb only, but all the other limbs have to stay on. And you have to try to just use your creativity. And it's so fun. And it's like, whoa, it's like being a kid again. And discover the, the fun of just pure movement. And then you start to see its applications in, in fighting. And uh, learning how to just loosen the shoulder, because in bodybuilding, your shoulders get really compacted because you're just always holding weight on them. And, and then just being able to elongate them and, and loosen them up, it's just so crazy. And when I first started doing it, I kept getting blood rushes in my head because I must have had so many knots that when I was just moving this way, just like, just whoa, I suddenly, whole yeah, like jet of totally, blood like, my, my eyes are just, I can't see anything. I'm like, whoa, blood just blood rush, and I'm about to faint, and I just hold the wall, I'm like, okay. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, and it also coincided with a part of my life where I was just freeing more, being more flexible emotionally and personality-wise. Awesome. Well, man, we've been ranting for an hour and a half, I think, and is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, which, I don't which we ever got to any lifestyle hacks. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't matter. Like that's the way they, that's the way these podcasts run. It's like I get an awesome person on, and then we roll, and this is where we do. Yeah, yeah, man, we yeah. got so much to talk about. A lot yeah. has changed. Right, let's in... let's, uh, let's do this again. Let's definitely do this again. Yeah, I would, I would love to if you want to have me on your show or vice versa. I'd Absolutely. Yeah, I was just about to suggest sometime. that if you would be yeah if you'd be willing to do that, I'd of course, love to have Absolutely. that. Absolutely. No, there's lots cool. more. There's we'll so much up. more I wanted to discuss. So, um, but we will wrap it up there. So. Before we finish up for the day, and I think we covered some awesome stuff. I think we probably convinced some tough guys that they could get some therapy and it wouldn't be, wouldn't be the worst <laughs> thing. It's great hearing the common issues that, that men typically have. Like it's, I think there is something valuable about knowing that you're not alone. Like that most of us feel unworthy in some sense. Uh, it's part of the human condition, I think, because you know we are social animals and we need to feel validated by other people. And women have their own versions of this and... It's a universal condition, I would say, except for people who are so delusionally confident that probably they should have a bit of <laughs> right bit of, uh, <laughs> the grandiose themselves. Yeah, it's 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 like part of the part of the journey of going from you know unformed man into warrior into your kingship and into your full expression is that you will face those shadows along the way, or you'll need to. Um, and you and I have been facing our own shadows for for as long as we've been at least a bit conscious that they existed. And probably will continue to do so for some time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of. Um, so if to anyone, <laughs> totally. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you or like find out more about your material, how would they do that? Yeah, then go to uh, davidtnphd.com. That's David T I A N P H D dot com, and uh, there's a contact form on there. Lots of content to check out as well. And we have a free masterclass, uh, especially for guys who are trying to get better with women. Um, so check that out. And uh, contact us. Let us know what you think of this podcast and uh, any other questions you got. Great to hear from you. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, David. This has been James Marshall and David Tien reporting for the Natural Lifestyles podcast. If you enjoy this, smash that like button. This is the first time I've ever said this. You like this, Alex? (laughs) Subscribe and send us money on Patreon. No, we don't do that, actually. Uh, Stay (laughs) tuned for the launch of of the Lifestyle Design Academy. It's already live because we've recorded this just before the launch. So now's your chance to join myself and an amazing group of dudes all around the world as we create kick-ass lifestyles and get incredible guests like David into the school. Thank you so much, David. Uh, We'll be in touch very soon. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Natural Natural Lifestyles Podcast. Podcast. Check us out on YouTube at The The Natural Natural TV. TV. See you on the next episode.